0: welcome to the cohort sisters podcast where we bring to life the stories struggles and successes of black women navigating doctoral degree programs and their lives beyond the degree i'm your host and the founder of cohort sisters dr ijama cola Cohort Sistas is an online global network empowering Black women pursuing doctoral degrees by providing resources, mentorship, and community. For more information, please visit our website at CohortSistas.com. You're listening to episode four of the Cohort Sistas podcast. In this week's episode, I talk with Dr. Mercy Ajapong, who is an assistant professor in sociology of education at New York University. Dr. Ajapong received her PhD in educational policy studies from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and she shares with us how she bounced back from a 2.16 undergraduate GPA, why she turned down a PhD acceptance from Howard, how she coped with going from a life in New York to a life in Wisconsin, and how she found mentorship outside of her PhD program. Let's get into our conversation. So where are you from and where do you live now?
1: I was born in Ghana, but I was raised in the Bronx and now I live in downtown Manhattan.
0: So what is your doctorate in and from what school?
1: Sure. It's in Educational Policy Studies and it's from the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Education. I started grad school in 2010, and I finished in 2019. Okay. So a nine-year process at three different
0: institutions. And can you talk a little bit more about your dissertation project specifically?
1: My dissertation project looked at the ways in which perceptions of Blackness and Africanness impact how West African immigrant students, specifically high school students, are perceived and therefore treated based on those perceptions. The research was conducted in New York City. So even though I was a student in Madison, Wisconsin, I was in New York doing data collection. It was a one-year critical ethnographic research, and it involved, of course, West African immigrant students, since they were my main population, but it also involved teachers and counselors and non-African students as well. Mm -hmm. And it took place in two different schools within the Bronx specifically.
0: Very interesting. What were your main findings?
1: I would talk about two main findings because I was very interested in the ways that perceptions of these two identity categories, Blackness and Africanness, and how perceptions of those impacted how these particular students who fit both identities were treated. I found out that the terms of who's African was very consistent in both schools. They were like, oh, you're African if you were born in Africa, if you have a parent from Africa, something to that degree. Who was Black actually differed in both schools, like who was considered Black and when Africans decided to identify as Black or African, or both, differed in both schools. So in one school where the major population were African Americans, African immigrant students made it a point to distinguish themselves from what they call the Black population, which is the African American population, due to their knowledge of how those particular groups of students were treated by teachers and counselors. So they were like, I see how they're being treated and how they're talked about in such negative manner that I'm just going to distance myself Mm -hmm. from it. So they emphasized or highlighted their Africanness or their nationality or even their ethnicity within their home country. But in my second school, where there were no African Americans because of the nature of the school, it's an international school, so all the students are immigrants. And the Black population in that school were actually Africans and Haitians. In that particular school, the African immigrants identified both as Black and as African. And to them, the Black identity wasn't an American identity. It was a Black diaspora identity. Of course I'm Black. Look at my skin. I'm from Africa. Even asking them that question, they were like laughing at me. And they were like, of course I'm Black. What do you mean? What is your point to this question? But in the other context, when I asked African students if they were Black, they were like, wait, no, I'm not Black. I'm African. And overall, I make the argument that who is Black and what is considered Black really depended on the school context and particularly the demographic makeup of the students within those schools. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the main findings. This currently, in the public discourse, there's this idea of Africans being mild minorities, Mm -hmm. right? So this discourse has been happening at least for the past five to 10 years. And this particular discourse actually existed in both schools. Teachers and counselors were like, oh, I love these African students. They're my best students. They do so well, they're high achieving they're obedient. The list goes on and on. I was lucky enough to be able to have access to African students' transcript. In one school, the African students were actually high-achieving. In terms of actual grades, they were high-achieving. But in my other school, the African students were not high-achieving at all, right? Mm-hmm. Even though in that school, the perception held very strong. Teachers were like, oh yeah, African students in this school are smart. And I'm like, I'm not saying they're not smart, but they're not high-achieving. Because of the nature of my research in that school, I was able to bring it to my adult participants who are my teachers and my counselors and say, you're saying that they're smart, which I agree with you. They are smart kids, but in terms of achievement, they're not high achieving students because I wanted them to come to the realization that the way that they positioned in African students weren't matching with what they are actually achieving and in perceiving them as being high achieving actually restricts you from actually helping them sometimes mm-hmm. because you're like, oh, they will figure it out when a lot of the students were not figuring it out. But some of them wouldn't ask for help because they're like, I'm supposed to know this, but mm-hmm. you don't. But there were negative consequences to them being perceived as high achievers when they weren't. But there were also positive consequences for them being perceived as high-achieving students because there were mechanisms in place that allowed them to really leverage the perception of them being high-achieving. So when they didn't do their homework, teachers were like, oh, there must be a good reason why this African kid didn't do their homework, because they just wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, there were four major findings, but those are the two that I'm currently like, working on and writing. Okay. About, so.
0: Okay. Very interesting. Speaking for myself, as an an African immigrant who grew up in America, you know, the tension of being African and being Black is something that I always, you know, dealt with. So I'm glad that someone has looked into it. I have so many more follow-up questions. What are your current research interests? What are your current research projects?
1: I am actually doing a follow-up study with the students that were in my research. So my research was conducted in 2016. So it's been about four years now. Now I'm talking to my students again from the the dissertation research and kind of seeing where they are, how they're making sense of the world that they live in right now in terms of them being immigrants and Black and African and whatever identities that you're bringing to the table. So that's just what I'm doing right now because I'm turning my dissertation to a book manuscript, which I'm in the process of doing now. And I want to add something else to it, something Mm -hmm. that wouldn't get from the dissertation because you can't just publish a dissertation.
0: I feel that I'm in the same place now trying to figure out like what else can I do (laughs) to make it book worthy. Great now we can talk about the journey. How did you even end up in a doctoral program in the first place?
1: Good question. So I went to undergrad from 2004 to 2008. I went to SUNY Geneseo upstate New York. In undergrad I honestly did not know what I was doing. I did absolutely nothing. I Partied the entire four years of my life because to me, it was more so you just have to get a degree. And so I graduated undergrad with a 2.16 GPA, which is out of a 4.0. I went in as an accountant major because originally in high school, I was an intern at the McGraw-Hill Company, which is a publishing Mm -hmm. company, and also the financial subsidiary Standard & Poor's downtown. So I worked with them every summer for five years, and I got really comfortable in the space. I was talking to everybody while I was there, and they were like, oh, you really like accounting? Go get a degree in accounting, and you could come back to us. And so I was like, oh, okay, I'm just going to go get a degree in accounting. Realized that's not really my thing. So anyway, four years later, and going from accounting to psychology to sociology, the recession hit when I was graduating. I also graduated, again, with such a low GPA that like, there was nothing really that I could do. So for two years, I was just interning, doing this and a third. And then in 2010, I decided to apply to graduate school, mostly because a bunch of sixth graders motivated me to go back to school. (laughs) Um, I was interning at a nonprofit in the city. It was an educational nonprofit that took very brilliant, high-achieving Black and brown kids and essentially gave them social and cultural capital, Mm -hmm. the type that you need to get into certain spaces. They were amazing kids. They were so smart. And I was like, oh my God, if these kids could do all these things, (laughs) I can do something with myself. So anyway, I applied to grad school. I applied for a master's program. So I ended up getting a master's program from NYU, actually, from the sociology of education program, which is the same program (laughs) I'm in right now. It's interesting to see the full circle. Mm -hmm. Um, I have colleagues who were my professors back then. So it's quite fascinating. And then after that, I was originally going to Howard University for a PhD in sociology and anthropology. I was like, this is great. I love DC. This is going to be amazing. But then I wasn't able to get the funding that I wanted because they had no money. So I was like, okay, I can't go because I don't want to put myself in debt for a PhD program, essentially. Uh, so I put off grad school for a year. And then a friend of mine a week later was like, hey, since you have a year to kill, Penn, the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, has a master's program that is like a two-year program, but you could probably do it in a year in the summer. Mm-hmm. And I think it might be rolling deadline. So you should try to apply for it. So I applied and they accepted me. <laughs> and so I moved to Philly and got a master's of science in education
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: from the school of ed. And then while I was there, I reapplied to PhD programs. Yeah. And then I ended up in Madison because they, they just had better financial offers because I don't believe in going in debt for things that you don't have to go into debt for.
0: Do you think that you made the right decision in going to Madison?
1: Oh, yes. I do think it was a great decision. The question that I get the most when people are like, wait, you lived in Madison, Wisconsin? was like, wait, you lived in Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> Especially going from New York to Philly and then Madison, they're like, how was the transition there? Right. And to me, it wasn't difficult. I have all the colleagues who I know have a bit of a more difficult time with the transition, but for me, it wasn't difficult. And I think... The reason why it wasn't difficult because I was realistic about where I was going. I was very realistic about it. I was like, okay, I've never been to Madison, Wisconsin before. I didn't do like the student visits and I didn't do any of that. I moved there the day before school started. (laughs) Um, So in terms of having been physically in the space, I I didn't do that. But also I Googled it. I was like, okay, what is the space I'm moving into? Let me just read up on it. And I looked at the racial ethnic demographics there. I looked at the political views in the space, et cetera, et cetera, right? I looked at all of those things. Were they going to deter me from going regardless of how I was? No, it was not. But I think to me, knowledge is power. It's good Mm -hmm. to at least know what I'm walking into. And because I knew the space I was walking into, it was just, okay, this is what it is. I'm coming here to get a degree and then I'm leaving. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I took it. I wasn't going to make it a home. So I think it was great. The program is amazing. And Now that I'm graduated and I talk to other people from other programs, I'm like, yeah, no, this is, this was the best. And I I tell people, I'm like, I know you don't want to live in Madison, Wisconsin, but your school of education is great. So you should probably check it out.
0: So would you say that Black women who are considering PhD programs should be open to going anywhere? Of course.
1: I think you should be open to going anywhere. And that's not to say that I don't have ideas of what you want. Don't just be like, oh, I just want to get into a PhD program. It's more so like, what program do you want to go to? That's more important to me than where the program is. So I think if you have an idea of what you're looking for, where you're looking to get out of the program, and if there's people there who you're willing to work with, I think those should be the decision makers. Right. not necessarily where the, the institution is located. I'm not saying don't think about that, because where the institution is located can make or break you. But I think you know yourself, right? Some of us are more resilient than others, and that's just the reality of life, right? You know where your limit is, where you can and cannot take. And I think being realistic about who you are and what you're willing to push back on and what you're not willing to push back on, I think you'd be fine. The only thing I, I feel like I wouldn't advise people to do, particularly Black women, is going from undergrad to a PhD program. I don't think that is a great idea at all. <laughs> And I'm glad I had five years in between before I got the PhD mm-hmm. program. I've seen people really burn out and they always have horrible stories. They're mm-hmm. like, oh, how was your experience? I was a 27 years old when I started my PhD program, right? Mm-hmm. So, as a 27 year old, I kind of knew what the hell I was doing. That's different from being a 22 year old. Yeah. Right? If I was 22 starting a PhD, oh, Lord, I don't know how that would have played out. But as a 27 year old, when I got to the PhD program, like, you can't tell me nothing. Mm-hmm. Are you going to help me or are you not going to help me? And I think, At that age, I also knew first how to negotiate better for myself, and also how to speak to people who supposedly have authority over me in terms of power dynamics. That's one of the things that people of color, but particularly women of color, struggle with. Mm -hmm. Like not wanting to step on toes or not wanting people to perceive them as being mad or aggressive. Because the thing is, they're going to think that way anyway. And sometimes you just got to take that and use that to your advantage, right? I think because of those perceptions that people do have of us and our fear of trying to make sure that's not it, we tend to not advocate for ourselves in ways that we know we should. But I think because I was 27 years old, as opposed to like 22 years old, going into that space, I also know that I'm here to get the degree from myself. And so me and whoever I'm working with will have to come to some kind of understanding that works for both of us, but especially works for me, because at the end of the day, I'm the one I have to deal with this, right?
0: It is advice I needed to hear when I was
1: 21. I was like, just, I just feel like you just need, just take a year off, do something else. (laughs) I I have a 23 year old sister who's currently trying to apply to grad school. And initially she wanted to do it right when she graduated um, undergrad. And I was like, just give it a year, work, get a job or Mm -hmm. something, like do anything for a year. And it's not because I want to deter people from it. No, I just want to make sure that When you get in, you can stay in it because a lot of people are going in, but they're not staying, they're not sticking with it, right? Or they're like in grad school in a PhD program for 10 years. That is ridiculous to me. And so if you're going to, I'm not going to tell you to go in right after undergrad when I know how difficult it is. The retention for for you is just very um, low.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: So I'd rather you just wait for a little bit before you go.
0: Yeah, 100% agree. (laughs) So can you talk about how you found a mentor before you entered the program and also while you were in the program?
1: Mm. My mentors weren't in my PhD program per se. So the people that at least I saw as my mentor while I was in graduate school were were those that I met when I started my first graduate program, which was Mm -hmm. at NYU. And they were in faculty at NYU. They were faculty, actually, at, other, at another institution. And those connections were actually quite random. I was trying to write my master's thesis, and I couldn't find anybody who had any kind of knowledge or research expertise in the specific field that I was interested in looked everywhere. People were recommended for me, reached out to people, didn't work out. Nobody knew anything about what I was trying to study. And then a friend of mine, the same friend who actually got me to go to Penn, found an article online about the population I was interested in, which is African-American students in the U.S. And he sent me the article. And then I emailed the authors of the article and come to find out one of them was a faculty member at um, CUNY Lehman College in the Bronx. And she emailed me back and was like, hey, It's nice to know that there's another young African scholar who's interested in this Bless me for coffee and then I ended up getting a research assistantship in her department with another faculty who was not African and those two just kind of mentored me it wasn't like a formal thing it was just like hey I'm applying for this grant do you want to help me do it let's put your name on it I want to put together a symposium for this conference do you want to join? Oh, I'm writing this book. You want to submit a chapter or I have this huge fund to do this study. You want to join the study? It was like that. And it's just been like that for the last 10 years.
0: You were able to maintain the relationships that you built with these people throughout your PhD program. And it seems like even currently in your professional life. So Uh that sounds like a testament to feeling free to look outside of your PhD program for mentorship and not being bogged down by the limits of the faculty in your department. Of course.
1: I think a lot of times people go in thinking that my advisor or my chair is the only one that is supposed to help me, and that's just not true. But also some people don't think outside of that, and it's not their fault. They're just like, this is the person who's been set up to help me, so they should be the one that I should go to. I was almost forced to have to look outside of my department, my program, and my institution just because, as I said, there was nobody in my program who was able to help me. And I think I was just put in a position where I had to go outside of the institution. And even for my PhD program, I had an advisor or a chair who was amazing. I'm so glad I was paired up with her. She's actually amazing at developing graduate students in a sense and getting you ready for academia if you're interested in academia. She's so good at it, which I'm so glad I learned from her. Even though she was my primary committee member, because her research and my research don't align, I had to go find another person who actually could help me. So her research looks at Black families in suburbia. I don't do that at all like i don't look (laughs) at suburbia i look at urban education i look at immigrants she looked at native-born folks our population is so different our context is different and so she's able to help me in terms of topics but in terms of the actual like context and space and people she wasn't able to help me and so i just went to another faculty in the department who i was like you do research on asian immigrants in new york great i'm interested in new york context Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't do research on Asians specifically, but you know the New York context, you know the immigrant and immigration policy literature in education, so then I'm going to take what you know and what my advisor know on the topics and we're going to mix it together and we're going to help me out. And it worked. Again, you just have to go with, this is what I'm trying to do, who can help me? And the person that may be able to help you might not be the one who's in immediate reach, and you just have to kind of be okay emailing people and be like, hey, can I talk to you? Yeah.
0: Such good tips. How did you find funding?
1: Yes. The reason I mentioned earlier that I didn't end up going to Howard because they Mm -hmm. weren't giving me the funding I thought I I needed. And they weren't also very transparent because they were just like, oh, once you get there, you could get funding. And I was like, uh, that's a little (laughs) tricky because like, what if I don't? But also how did they get funding? Can you connect me to the grad students? I could ask them like how they get funding. Like none of that was available. So I was like, I have no idea what's happening here. right? And the reason why I ended up going to Madison is because they gave me two years of funding. They're like, we're going to give you two years of funding. We can guarantee you that. We recommend that you take one your first year and take the second one during your dissertation year. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about it and trying to think of like, what would that look like in a PhD program? How long do I think I'm going to be in the program for? Mm-hmm. How will the two years of funding work out? And my planning of it was, I'm going to start in 2013 and I'm only going to take two years of coursework. And then the last year would be comp exams and proposal. And then I'm going to start my research my fourth year. That was the plan. Luckily, it worked out that way. But I also asked them what happened between those other years while I'm there, because I'm not going to be able to do just two years. And they said that actually, we can't legally guarantee funding, but you're going to get funded. Everybody in this program gets funded. Initially, I was like, it's not being guaranteed. So I can't really take your word for it. But then, of course, I was like, can I talk to other graduate students? And I spoke to a bunch of them. And they were like, oh, yeah, you're going to get funded. The the program makes sure that everybody gets funded. And the fundings are just tied to like you being on a research team or you being a TA. So all of my funding, outside of the two years that were guaranteed, for a few of them, I was a TA. And then once I moved up in the ranks, I started teaching my own course. So that was how I got funded. Yeah. Nice. But I also had like tons of jobs. <laughs> <the last laughs> couple of years. So okay,
0: let's I talk about that. Of- Did you feel like you needed to supplement your funding?
1: Oh, Yes. Oh my goodness, yes. I don't mind giving numbers because I ain't shy about it. <laughs> and I feel like a lot of times when people talk about funding, they don't put numbers to it. So you're just like, what does that even look like? I'm like, give me numbers, break it down for me. If my rent is this much and I need to eat and I do this, what is the amount? Right? The second year where I now was the move from getting funding to having to teach. I was a TA, but even with the TA, I think my stipend, once I paid my rent, I had like 700 left for the month. What is 100 dollars for the month going to do for me? And this is just rant. I still got to pay my, you know, conness and all these other things. So when I was done, I was like, how do I make money? I've been babysitting forever. I'm going to write a book about babysitting sometime in the future. That's where most of my money came from. I was babysitting a nanny and nanny like a crazy person for the, really for the past 10 years. So I've been doing that. Um, I just stopped when I got this tenure track position. I'm like, okay, now I go afford to eat. But that's mostly what I did. I also worked as a tutor for people outside of the country, specifically in Asian countries. So I worked for a company that connected me to people who needed tutors to learn English. So I was doing that. And because of the hour differences, I was like working at three in the morning. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's crazy, but. <laughs> that I don't lie about. I tell people that all the time. A lot of these private schools give you full funding. We're gonna give you funding for four years or for five years, right? I went to a public school, they don't do that unless you're. Going into like the school of business or engineering, those particular schools that have actual money, they can guarantee you four or five years of funding. But school of eds and social science departments, a lot of times, unless they're in private institutions, they're not just giving you money with nothing attached to it. You got to either teach or do research or et cetera, et cetera. And during any semester, I had at least two jobs that weren't my TA ship. And I know it wasn't only me because. My colleagues as well, we all had tons of jobs to make ends meet, and it sucks. It sucks because we knew other people in our department who, because of their financial background, that wasn't an issue. For some of us, we don't come from that kind of family, so we just had to, had to do that. You know?
2: mm-hmm.
0: Do you have a quick tip about time management when you have to work outside of your program, but you also need to get your work done?
1: The tip I'm about to give is not something that I figured out when I was in grad school. I just figured that out now. <laughs> and I was like, damn it, I should have done that back then. The way my mind works too, I don't like complete structure. Like it doesn't work for me. If I have to do the same thing, like at the same time every day, I'm just going to lose my mind. Like I can't do that. But my advisor was like that person. So she's always, you got to plan these things out. You got to have plan A through Z. And I'm like, can I just have A and B and see what happens and stuff like that. But what I've realized now, (laughs) like probably a week ago, is that simply waking up in the morning, like on a weekday morning or whatever, and not checking my email saying, I'm going to sit down, I'm gonna write for three hours. I'm not gonna check my email. And just doing that, man, you just get so much done in a day. <laughs> and interestingly, like my advisor in grad school told me already, this is what I do. I wake up at nine, from nine to 12, I just write. And she's like, just try it. And I'm like, oh, nine to 12, it depends on the day. Cause some days like, I have to babysit from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. And, and I knew that. I knew there's days that I can't just get up and just work That's not happening. But on days where I could, I should have. Cause once you check email, you get thrown up once you check your text messages you get thrown off. like and i'm not saying don't look at it you can look at it to see if there's any like emergency emails emergency text messages but honestly just like, being like i'm not responding to anything for three hours and i'm just gonna do my work man yeah it's, it's just like man it's great <laughs> <laughs> and i know it's very simple but it's also like man
0: it's profound. It's like life changing. Someone told me the same thing like two weeks ago because I was asking them about how to fit in writing with everything else I do. And she said, just wake up first thing in the morning. Don't even shower, don't brush your teeth. Just write. And I, write. and I wrote so much the past two days. Yes! I wrote the past two days and I've written literally in a year. <laughs> Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of the Cohort Sistas podcast. If you are a black woman interested in joining the Cohort Sistas membership community, or you're looking for more information on how to support or partner with Cohort Sistas, please visit our website at www.cohortsistas.com. You can also find us on all social media platforms at Cohort Sistas. Don't forget to subscribe to the Cohort Sistas podcast and leave us a quick review wherever you're listening. Thank you so much for joining us this week and we'll catch you in next week's episode.